God created Adam as a mature man and Eve as a mature woman. God united them, as we know, in marriage, having created them with the capacity to enjoy sexual intimacy and by that means to procreate. Marriage, intercourse, and childbirth were God's blessing upon mankind, whom He commissioned to fill the earth with this capacity, with this joy, one generation after another. And we've indeed celebrated that a bit here this morning with uh, these infants that have been brought before us, how we thank God for them and for His blessing upon us as a church along these lines. All of this man, woman, marital intimacy, children, God looked at it as very good. But with Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's will in Genesis 3, all this good we know was corrupted by sin and its consequences. Childbirth became a painful affair. Although Eve was the mother of all the living and she was the one recognized to be then the mother of the one who would bring forward that individual that would crush Satan's head. And yet every child that Eve bore was a sinner. And every child born through her children were sinners. There was no need for instruction on how to sin. Johnny wasn't given lessons in lying. I really wish you'd get this right, son. We're going to work on this again. Let's practice again. How do we lie? There's no child that's ever walked on this planet that needed that lesson. Only the Lord Jesus Christ was free of it. All others come by it naturally. Every child to whom she gave birth was a sinner. And on down to our day, as the curse enveloped the human story like a noxious fog, women suffered infertility and miscarriage and stillbirth and hemorrhaged to death in labor. Men, early in the account, began to take multiple wives. Mates committed adultery, divorce, entered into the equation. Prostitution dug its claws into every culture on the planet. As with all of God's good gifts, people corrupted the gift of sexuality in idolatrous ways. And as man's rebellion against God deepened and false religion metastasized, the idolatry of illicit sex came to characterize even the religious rituals of the nations. Myths about false gods enshrined sexual deviance, gave a place for it, an excuse for it. It became part of the narrative of the pagans. And fertility rites then were practiced at pagan temples They turned shrines and temples into brothels of the worst sort. On every high hill, one could perhaps find such a high place where all types of evil was taking place. Under the guise of pleasing the gods in their sight, where they could see clearly on the top of these hills, in their sight, all kinds of sin. To please the gods... They said pagans satiated their illicit sexual cravings with abandon. Now, in this sea of sensuality, with all that I've said, thinking of this world bent this way, go in your mind's eye to a remote stretch of wilderness. There at the base of Mount Sinai, the one true and living God has come down in a cloud of glory to fill a tent and dwell in the midst of His chosen people, Israel. There in the middle of the camp, with all the tribes of Israel encircling encircling it with their tents, is God's tent, is the meeting place between His people and the true and living God. 
Now there's a major problem that's developed as we continue to work our way through the book of Leviticus. And that major problem is that God is perfectly pure and holy, which puts the sinful people of Israel at grave risk. The holiness of God in all of His purity is dangerous to sinners. And there's another major problem with it, and that is like all people, Israel is corrupted by sin, and this puts God at risk. At risk of being tainted by us. How can a sinful people approach the living, sinless, and holy Creator and Sovereign Lord of the universe? How can we come into His presence with our moral filth? Leviticus slowly answers that question. But it answers that question in establishing this problem. We are tainted with sin. And our corruption is a danger to us in the presence of a holy God and a danger to Him. And so as Leviticus continues to unfold, it continues to channel us down to think a certain way about these things. How can a sinful people approach a holy God? The questions are answered in the book of Leviticus largely by way of enacted drama. That is, God provides ritual laws to steer Israel to think a certain way about who God is and how sinners may approach Him. Thinking again in the context of the pagan world in which they find themselves... God lays out these laws to say, I want you to think a certain way about your approach to the divine. Keep in your mind, in this pagan world, are these shrines and temples where ritual prostitution is commonplace. This is the connection point between the gods and the people. The pursuit of fertility rights, the pursuit of this illicit sexuality in order to gain fertility in the land. This is going on all around Israel. But as this question is addressed now, how do we approach a holy God? Remember, we've looked at this a long ways back, but the arrangement of the book of Leviticus within the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible... Leviticus is not some weird book that's to be set off to the side and is really kind of embarrassing and strange and we're really glad that it's all passed. What we've got to understand about the Pentateuch is that Leviticus is its pinnacle. Everything is leading to this point of how God's presence comes to dwell among God's people and how those people may approach Him, though sinful. So giving Leviticus its place, it was in the mind of the Israelites, holy ground. And what is described here is holy ground in the text before us even today. But narrowing in now, taking that top box here on the graphic and narrowing in and doing the same thing with that box, let's also consider how the book of Leviticus itself is arranged. It too, in a sense, like a peak on a mountain hits its height at chapter 16. The Day of the Atonement is the pinnacle, in a sense, of the whole Pentateuch. It is the place where this question is answered with the most specificity, how can a sinful people enter into the presence of a holy God? The Day of Atonement is a day of total purification of the people. Do you see how the development of rituals on the one side, beginning the ascent of the mountain, so to speak, and then the descent on the other side? Priests are discussed and purity laws are discussed. I I bring this to your attention if you just watch the circle here around this purity section. But we are in chapters 11 through 15 and we're coming to chapter, uh, chapter 15 today, which leads to this pinnacle moment of the Day of Atonement. So these purity laws hit us in our setting as really, well, honestly, weird. 
This is just weird, strange terrain for us. But we need to remember that these purity laws are there connecting some very important parts of the book of Leviticus. What happened with the priests in chapter 10? Nadab and Abihu fall dead. Why? They did not approach God in His holiness and they corrupted the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. We're moving from that in chapter 10 and we're going to be working our way back in chapter 16 to that matter of corrupting the tabernacle. It's not a mistake that Nadab and Abihu are mentioned there in chapter 10 and picked up again in chapter 16 at the pinnacle of Leviticus' message. And it's not a mistake that these purity laws find themselves right here, are placed right here. Leviticus chapter 15 brings to a close these purity laws to establish ritual cleanness and uncleanness. In the matter of clean and unclean, Leviticus 10.10 is a key phrase. God instructing the priest says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This was one of the tasks of the priest to teach what is clean and unclean, holy and profane or common. In chapter 15, we'll come to that later today, but the significance of this is seen. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is precisely what Nadab and Abihu did. So again, it's a drama. It's like a movie. It's not applicable to us in some respects, but yet it is applicable in that it's steering us to see that our uncleanness is a problem. Our innate sinfulness is a problem in approaching a holy God. We can defile His presence, the Israelites are being taught, and it teaches us about how to think about ourselves, our human nature, and our approach to God. Now again, thinking of the pagan context of widespread sexual promiscuity and idolatry, of hills with shrine prostitutes dotting the land to which Israel is coming to possess, as God teaches His people how to approach Him, He has used in chapters 11 through 15 food laws. He has used laws concerning childbirth, chapter 12, and uncleanness from skin diseases. Chapters 13 through 14. You all that were here last week, you made it this week. You really should get a star. (laughs) Somebody described last week as waterboarding. (laughs) That's a great, great description. It was tough, wasn't it? Uh, In my Bible, seven pages of skin diseases. What on earth does that have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us when we get into this cave, this archaic place of Leviticus, and see these purity laws within their context, leading to the pinnacle of the Day of Atonement. Now we come again to chapter 15 in another section of clean and unclean. But as we get there, perhaps for some just coming into the conversation today, Remember that there are two realms. There is the holy realm and there is the common or profane realm. Being in the common realm doesn't make one sinful necessarily, but the holy realm is that devoted uniquely to God and the tent of meeting is at the center of all holiness in Israel. Surrounded by the priests who are devoted to the service of God. Now, there's also then clean and unclean and some overlap between these with the common There are things that are clean and there are things that are unclean. But that which is unclean can never approach the holy realm of God. Only that which is clean can come into the presence of God. So as the Israelites are taught by the priests to think about clean and unclean with everything they eat, with virtually everything they do will decide by the end of the day, the very skin on their body and the functions of their body, in all of it, they're constantly thinking clean and unclean. I must be clean ritually 
to approach the holy God. And it is again something of a drama. Not everything that made one unclean was sinful. As we will definitely see today. But yet this teaching of how to approach God operates according to these categories. We may not be able to crack the code on the clean-unclean classification, but we do know that everyday life for Israel was calibrated to recognize the holiness of God in everything that they did. They were to recognize the holiness of God and how complicated it was for sinful man to worship in His presence. So last week, the uncleanness of skin diseases. Today, it gets, if anything, even more personal as God prepares the priest to oversee the uncleanness that can come from reproductive fluids. As God continues to reveal His law to Israel through the mediator Moses, the legislation starts here, Leviticus 15. If you're not there yet, turn there. and We come to the text then at chapter 15, first with a focus on unnatural, chronic bodily discharges of men. This too would render one unclean. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, And to Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge renders him unclean. It's it's unclean. A discharge from his body, the Hebrew word basar is used, flesh. And in this context, almost certainly refers to male genitalia. The discharge is a result here of infection, or of disease, and it would have been far more prevalent in that day without antibiotic medications. This is something we would have dealt with a lot more. Just like last week, they would have dealt much more with skin infections and diseases. This would have been daily life for them, much more than we would ever understand. But when you see that there's a discharge from his body that renders him unclean, how do you take unclean? If you've been walking through this series of Leviticus, you should have this down. Unclean, you don't take as yucky, although granted. You don't take it as sinful, necessarily. How do you take it? Ceremonially unclean, and thus unable to approach God in worship at the tabernacle. As we see in the verses to follow, the man's uncleanness affects others in his house. So there's this discharge that renders him unclean, unfit to stand in the presence of God. And verse 3, and this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge. It is his uncleanness that is scabbing over. It's, it's, it's terrible stuff. But notice the spread, verse 4, every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean and everything on which he sits shall be unclean and anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Bed, don't think frame, mattress, headboard, think bedroll, just laying on the ground, unraveled, just some sort of simple... um, pad or blanket verse 6 whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening and whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening and if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. 
Whatever the unclean man touches becomes unclean, as do the people who touch what the unclean man touches. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to put yourself in that spot and realize how complicated this gets. How it just constantly draws attention to where you're at and who you're with and what you're touching and and all that's going on in your life. It's pretty personal. The cleansing that we find required of this uncleanness by touching an object or a person as described is simple washing, which you know as we've worked our way through some of the sacrifices, this is a very simple way to be cleansed. It's not very complicated. It doesn't involve going to the tabernacle and offering a great number of, of sacrifices or, or quarantine or something of the like. It's, it's understood to be daily life. But daily life renders you unclean, things unclean, and other people who touch those things unclean. It's the least invasive of the rituals, but it's very complicated. We enter at verse 13 into the cleansing discussion of this ritual. Verse 13, that is people healed by God's grace, and we see what happens. And when the one with a discharge is cleansed, of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge." So as with skin diseases in chapters 13 and 14, the priests have nothing to do with the healing. There's no magical rites going on here. Again, contrast with the nations surrounding them. And the worship rituals have nothing to do with healing either. Only God heals. This is the point. The priests simply assist with judging uncleanness and with directing or orchestrating the cleansing ceremonies of the one who has been healed. When God chooses to heal them. You notice sacrificing of two birds. Uh, The man is a sinner with the sin offering, acknowledging that, and reaffirms his consecration to God, the burnt offering. But again, a a fairly inexpensive offering. It's part of daily life. It's fairly normal, although we're dealing here with chronic or ongoing uh, infection or difficulty this way. We move then secondly to natural bodily discharges of men, verse 16, which also render one ritually unclean. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening, and every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. In view is any such emission not involving intercourse. Wherever that takes place, it renders one unclean. Then, verse 18, kind of at the nexus of the whole chapter, is this very normal, human, evidence of the gift of God relationship. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. The assumption is that the relationship is within the confines of marriage. There's nothing sinful about such a relationship. God created it. He encourages it. And through this means, He blesses families with children. It's a good thing. But passing reproductive fluid renders one unclean. That is, ritually unable to enter God's holy presence until there is some sort of cleansing. And these fluids and this reproductive orientation is all part of the drama. What did these laws intend to teach? What is a point? It's not just a meaningless drama. It has a point. What is it? It's difficult for us to get to it because the text never says. But taken all together and reasoning through it as we have through the weeks, it certainly, first of all, reminds God's people that sin is passed on through procreation. It wasn't Adam and Eve had a sinful child and then that next generation, they had it to work out all on their own and see what they could do with rescuing humanity. Not at all. 
Every man and woman who comes together and every child thus born is a sinner. It reminded Israel of this. We are sinners by nature. Sin is embedded in our DNA, as it were. Infants, as sweet as they are, are not angels born into this world that we corrupt. They're born into this world as sinners. As I mentioned, we won't be teaching classes on lying. They get really good at that all by themselves. I'm really good at that all by myself. Secondly, what this did is that it excluded pagan fertility rites at the temple of God. There could be no illicit sexual relationship or prostitution at the tent of meeting just because of this law. It wasn't going to happen. It couldn't happen. And if you were thinking, I'll do it anyway, we'll introduce prostitution into the worship of God at His temple, at His tabernacle, you've got Nadab and Abihu in your memory. That doesn't sound like a very good idea. They offered strange fire. To introduce this into the worship of God is downright dangerous. It wasn't going to happen. So what was commonplace among the pagans was restricted in the worship of Yahweh. God is holy and the people of Israel are to be distinctive from the nations. There would be no such activity at God's temple because He was the giver of fertility. He was the healer. And He gave sexuality to be between one man and one woman in a marriage covenant for life. And so he was a holy God. There was no other God like him. Are we on track here? Is this really something somebody might think of doing? Having sexual relations at the tent of meeting in the tabernacle of God? Well, remember back in 1 Samuel 2? Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. They are priests. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This is precisely what God seeks to withhold and restrict. He certainly knew how the pagans acted around his people. And he says with this law, no, this won't happen. Now, these priests do die. They die a violent death. They don't drop over dead like Nadab and Abihu in the tabernacle, but they certainly corrupt it. And the corruption goes off track in some horrific ways in 1 Samuel. We know that story, but it would have certainly had this effect. Thirdly, another effect is that it would have curtailed private sexual sin. I mean, you put it together, you're taking this ritual bath, and there were mikvar, mikvoth in the plural, these, these ritual baths are everywhere in Israel. It would have indication, not everyone could afford to have one, but very simplistic homes could. And the Israelites were taking these ritual baths on a fairly regular basis. It was much less of a private world than is ours today. This is probably where David and Bathsheba made that connection, or David made the connection to her. He's probably washing from and preparing to be ritually clean after her period. There wasn't a lot of privacy. And if you look at excavations today in Israel, you find that out pretty quickly. There were people living together in close proximity that probably would not be unlike what's right in this room right now. All of our homes would be in this space. So the privacy was really not there. And the knowledge of how you were living your life, everybody knew. They knew a lot of things about you that were very personal, and this would have been one of them. Bodily functions more on display. These laws would have indicated to neighbors if a married couple had a thriving or a languishing sex life. That gives us... The shivers, you know, we don't want that to be known. It's, it's private. That's our world. We put doors on our bathrooms. 
And we have privacy in all kinds of places. We have cabinets in our bathrooms. We don't want people to know what's in there necessarily. We have doors to our homes and all types of circles of privacy around us that we don't want people to know things. And I'm glad I live in that world, frankly. That's not this world. Nothing like it. And in this situation, with their tents all circled around, people had a great wisdom of one another, and this would have discouraged sexual sin in private. Just put it together, think through it, what it would have meant. We come then to natural bodily discharges of women in verse 19. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening." And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. The entire household again is affected. Wenham notes that the effect on most Israeli women would have been far less pronounced than than we're reading it here today. The reason being, first of all, that women married very young, many of them 12, 13 years of age. And then they were encouraged to have as many children as they possibly could, and the children were often weaned for two to three years. So putting that all together, it would have been far less for the average uh, uh, Israelite woman, far less of this experience, but undoubtedly it affected all of life. So it was the quest then of Israeli women to spend the bulk of their years of vigor either as with child or nursing one, and yet here we are, and all of the home affected. The text then moves at verse 25 to unnatural bodily discharges of women. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So we have there contracting the uncleanness. And then the cleansing also with this, verse 28, but if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, just as with men. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. That is, atonement is made. She is reconciled to God, not that she's done anything wrong, but in the sense that she's purified and now able to stand in the presence of God, having lost these fluids. And again, the priestly rituals have nothing to do with healing anyone. Only God can do that. Well, where is this steering us? Where is this taking us besides under, uh, down some fairly uncomfortable routes? But outside of that, what's, why? Why is this here? As we said, the book of Leviticus is utterly necessary to steer us to Christ. It provides offense in a sense, or walls that channel us down a certain way. How significant this is as we turn to the life of Christ. And I invite you to Mark chapter 5, if you'll make your way there in the text to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to look at an extended passage here from the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 5. With all of that background in view that we've just read, 
We find Jesus here in the midst of busy ministry in Galilee at verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea of Galilee. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Chronic, unnatural, fitting into the end of Leviticus 15. And she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, rather grew worse. The priests don't have incantations and all these rituals to heal you. Only God can heal. God may use a physician and she sought to use a physician, but only God can heal. She wasn't healing. She was getting worse and worse. She was unclean. She could not approach the temple in Jerusalem. When all the pilgrims gathered here from Galilee and worked their way down in pilgrim festival and ascended up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, she either never was able to go on this trip or if she went at all in any way, she couldn't touch anybody and she had to be standing way outside when she got there, if she ever made the journey at all, if anybody would even invite her on the journey knowing she was unclean. What an isolated, lonely woman she had to be. But verse 27, she'd heard the rumors. In fact, they were more than rumors, they were reports. She'd heard them. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment For she said, apparently to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Only God can heal. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He's being jostled around by all kinds of people. He looked around to see who had done it. There's a certain kind of touch that had taken place here. There's only two people on the planet right now that know what that touch was. Jesus knows in the limitations, the self-limitations of his humanity, he doesn't know who it was. Or perhaps he does, but he's drawing her out. But it seems to be that he doesn't in his human limitation really know who touched him. There's two people who know and he wants the two to meet. Verse 33, the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. Why is she fearful and trembling? Anyone that she's touched for 12 years, she's made unclean. This is a rabbi. This is a popular rabbi. It's not something you do to a popular rabbi to make him unclean. But in that moment of time, she went from unclean to clean and was miraculously and instantaneously healed. And grace flows. Verse 34, he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Your trust in God, your trust in me, Your belief that to touch even my robe would heal you has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I don't know all the facts, but I have a feeling that be healed of your disease meant she never got that again. 
It wasn't simply a stoppage for a moment. She was healed. Instantaneously, miraculously, and only God can heal. This drama, I would propose to you, this drama in Mark chapter 5 loses a lot of its steam without Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus 15 sets us up for this. And it is no mistake that Jesus also is healing those with other diseases. And that He's even raising the dead. All that Leviticus was channeling us to see is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Jesus is the greater bridge from uncleanness to holiness. He takes all of the ritual, He takes all of the sacrifice, and He fulfills it in His own sacrifice of Himself. As He dies, the Lamb of God in the place of sinners to purify us from all of our sin. Come back to Leviticus 15 just for a few moments. In the 31st verse, we read the purpose that is given at this point in Revelation to the Israelites. Why all of this bodily discharge issue of clean and unclean and ritual cleansing? Verse 31, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. There's nothing wrong with these bodily discharges, generally speaking. It could be that sin was behind one of them, certainly. But there's nothing innately wrong with any of this, and yet it renders you unclean before the Lord. God is teaching His people to understand that to the core of our being we are corrupt and to the core of His being God is holy. I want you to see this, God says. And in the bodily fluids that procreate life there is the continuing on of one sinner to the next. But this will not be how you worship Me at My temple. I am a God of pristine purity and cleanness. And so approaching God in a state of uncleanness could lead one to execution, Nadab and Abihu. The Lord's presence in their midst had to be protected from their uncleanness. And they had to be ritually prepared to approach His holiness. Defiling my tabernacle that is in your midst should stand out to us. He was in their midst. His presence was there. What a privilege. And what a danger. What a privilege to be brought to this tent to meet with God. But you better be prepared. And so the tabernacle defiled by Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10 has to be dealt with in Leviticus 16 at the pinnacle of this book. And the summary coming here at verse 32, this is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an omission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone male or female who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. I want you to get this. I want you to see this. I want you to never forget it. So that every day of your life, these matters are considered. In your family, on your person, in the community, they're considered. Indeed, as we've put it together with the last few weeks, for Israel, every meal you ate, every rash that infected your skin, every time a married couple had sex or a woman suffered her menstrual period, every time a child was born... You had no choice but to consider that you were sinful in nature and that you stood before an utterly holy God. God orchestrated it so that you were constantly thinking about His holiness and your sinfulness in light of it. Sacrifice after sacrifice is offered at the altar and ritual baptism after ritual baptism is pursued. The laws in Leviticus 15 set them apart from the other nations. 
making them a holy people. Future legislation. How is the temple approached in Jerusalem? It's approached, when we think of this holiness of Israel, it's approached with their back to the sun. Pagans worshipped the sun. They revered on some level. It was at least a small god, but many of them, it was, it was a big god. The sun god plays prominently even into religions to this day. The Israelites' priests turned their back on the sun. And in a similar way, the pagans went to their shrines and their temples and pursued prostitution, ritual prostitution there, all types of deviance. Israel was going to be distinct. She was going to be a holy people. And she would turn her back on this idolatry. It's not far off from the world in which we live. All the trappings are so different. But we live in a world of idolatrous fixation with illicit sex. So in some similar manner, we turn our back on it. Our world doesn't understand They're not giving us the time of day on why we believe what we believe, but we know we're very distinct. We're holy. And I would call us as a church in light of this conversation today to pursue that holiness in matters of sexuality. It might be young people that talk of kids at school or in the neighborhood or on the ball team or at work. Make it clear by how you respond to sensual talk that you belong to Jesus. You don't belong to this world. Your back's to the sun, as far as they're concerned. With pornography that so overwhelms our world and causes so much damage, understand it to be what it is, follower of Christ. It's a false religion. It's a sacred shrine that's set up to the gods of this world. Turn from it. Get clean of it. Stay clean of it. And seek the help of brothers and sisters in Christ to be pure. To the married, this is steering us a certain way as well. It certainly is calling us to turn our back on this world's ways and to say that divorce is not an option, that fidelity to one another within the bond of marriage is our call. To avoid joining the godless talk around co-workers. To stand out as holy. We believe. Don't let the world change your thinking. We believe that sexuality was God's idea. It's a beautiful gift. It's good. But that how people use it has been horribly corrupted. Standing for Christ means standing for marriage according to God's design. We are inhabitants of this world, but we're not in this world. We're not of it. And few things will so set us apart as the children of light as moral sexual purity. This nation, the nations of this world, are run by sexual deviance in high places. That's a given. And the people of this nation, the nations of the world, are intoxicated on sexual idolatries of all sorts. Our call is fidelity to a God of holiness and purity. And Leviticus 15 bends us there to the far more explicit teachings of the New Testament that steer us to align with God's creative purpose, such as 1 Thessalonians 4 This is the will of God for you in Christ. Your sanctification, your purity, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The passion of lust. I just want my desire. And if I desire it, it's got to be good as long as I don't hurt someone else. That's not us. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. It is those who are that, that's their identity, that's their God, 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to walk into the holy presence of God if that's who they are. But that is who some of you were. But you were, do you hear it? Do you hear Leviticus 15? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And how we rejoice that these laws do not apply to us because we've been cleansed. We've been cleansed no less from our sin than that woman who touched Jesus' robe was cleansed from her illness. We have been purified. Now we fight it. We continue in sin, but we have been cleansed. We've been washed in the sanctifying work of Christ. So cleansing from the corruption of sexual uncleanness and every other sin is found in the flow of blood and water that gushed from the side of Jesus as He died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin. Yes, it's an earthy, messy, sticky, smelly affair, this life we live in a fallen world. But there's one who died a messy, bloody death to deliver us from that sinful state. The good news is that this Savior who cleansed an unclean woman of her flow in an instant of time has the power to cleanse you of sin for time and eternity. It won't be realized in this life all of its implications, but He has done that. He has that power. Cleansed by this Savior's blood, we are washed spiritually. And we are indeed cleansed by baptism. Not as a mere ritual cleansing until we contact uncleanness again like the Israelites. We are immersed in water once as an appeal of a clear conscience which Jesus has cleansed by His Holy Spirit. And so the waters of baptism symbolizing the fact that Jesus saves us in order to purify for Himself a people, peculiar people, unique, set-apart people, zealous for good works. This is our calling. This is our life in Christ.